Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, the more things appear to change, the more they may remain the same. The, uh, the guy whose candidacy has upset so many putative apple carts, the best kind of apple carts, really, now that uh, apples are trucked in, Donald Trump, you know, the, the maverick, the guy who breaks all the rules, especially in foreign policy. He likes Putin. He likes King Jong-un. Un. He, uh, he met this way. He sat down for lunch at the home of 90-year-old. Yes, he's still alive. Evil really is the best way to fight aging. Henry Kissinger. Oh, sure, some think he's a war criminal, but he won the Nobel Peace Prize, so there you go. Sat down, uh, he did, for, you know, a little chat about the realities of American foreign policy. And so, in the same way that uh, in 2004, America faced a choice between two candidates of the two major parties, both of whom had gone to Yale and both of whom had belonged to the same secret society. Now it appears, the media is telling us, are telling us, we face a choice between two candidates, both of whom are touting their reliance, at least in part, on the wisdom of Henry Kissinger. The more things appear to change, the more they seem to remain the same. And speaking of which... Well, you know, you'd think financial crimes are top of the top of the pile in the wake of the uh, Great Recession for the United States government. Maybe they are. Jennifer Shasky Calvary, who's been director of the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, it's a whole network. It's another network. This show isn't carried on at the uh, Treasury Department. Uh, well, she's leaving. Jennifer, we hardly knew ye. She's working now, according to the whistleblower behind the Panama Papers, for HSBC. HSBC, one of the most notorious banks on the planet, headquartered right here in London town. You may remember they're the bank that was fined, oh, billions, a few billions, by the United States government for refusing to comply with money laundering rules with regard to huge deposits and, and cash transfers undertaken by drug traffickers and terrorist networks. Another network not carrying this program. Just, you know, going through the revolving door. And um, speaking of money laundering, the Treasury Department a couple of weeks ago announced stern new rules to crack down 
on uh, money laundering activities by banks. But according to uh, Heather Lowe, Director of Governmental Affairs at Global Financial Integrity, quote, the loopholes in the final U.S. Treasury rule allow banks to open accounts for companies without having any idea of the identity of the people who ultimately own or control that company. Without this critical information, banks can't determine whether the people behind the company are on a sanctions list, a drug kingpin list, or are public officials who may be stealing from their company's, their country's treasury or trying to stash their bribe money in U.S. banks. Unquote. The Treasury announced the new rules as tightening regulations, forcing banks to know who were opening accounts. A little paradoxical, but, you know, you got to have paradox to have irony. Hello, welcome to the show. Sweet and so she spent it in the city. As a blue most like you too. No one ever told her that someday maybe she'd have to give in. Thought you'd take the time and teach you quite a lesson. But soon she's feeling down, it's really quite depressing now. That no one else thinks she was born to win. Cause we are all walking on. Slobs who don't know much of anything And one day she's had enough She gives up, she gives in Meets a man who can because he's got the money Has some kids and says it's his She'll get the house when she wants out She's got the lifestyle now Without the worry Cause we all walk the line All walk the line Then we give in Yes, we all walk the line Taking to the high road Cast a stone, you're on your own Cause in this dirty world No one's perfect Cause we all walk the line All walk the line Then we give in Yes, we all walk the line All walk the line Then we get in it Yes, we all From the aforementioned London, England, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. London and all of Britain, you may have read or heard, is in the last month, right now, of a very, very contentious election campaign. It's actually a referendum on whether the country, the United Kingdom, 
<laughs> should uh, stay in or leave the European Union. And all sorts of facts and figures are being thrown back and forth about the economic impact of staying inside the EU or leaving it. What a disaster it would be to do one or the other. One country that could uh, maybe shine a little light on the subject, whose experience could, if it weren't really in the media shade at the moment, is a little place by the name of Greece. It wasn't even in the Eurovision Song Contest this year. That saved it some money. But um, it has just, it, its parliament has just voted another round of uh, austerity, the medicine that has put it in this shape so far. Five years after its first rescue, quote unquote, by the European Union, Greece's economy has shrunk by 27%, almost as much as the U.S. economy shrank at the outset of the Great Depression. Unemployment in Greece, 25%, more than 25% of the workforce, 50%, double that for the young people. They're not going to get radicalized just because they have no job and no future. Of the 10 EU regions with the highest unemployment rate, four are in Greece. The economy shrank again in the latest quarter. The debt to private and public debt to GDP ratio has climbed above 180%, which means the debt that the Germans keep insisting be paid in full can't. Look at the math. Do the math. Do what the Hillary Clinton supporters are urging Bernie Sanders supporters to do. Do the math, Germany. Even the International Monetary Fund has come out to say austerity, another round of which is uh, in the offing for the Greeks, uh, austerity won't work. Maybe the, the last half decade of uh, history might serve as some evidence. The IMF is calling for debt relief for Greece, something which the Germans resolutely oppose. So the Brits might ask the Greeks at this moment, how's that EU thing working out for you? Of course, the Greeks, the Greece is in the euro, which the Brits aren't, so that it's, it's a substa substantial difference. Still, you know. But uh, CNN covered Greece, I think, a couple of weeks ago by sending Andy, Anthony Bourdain there to eat. So uh, you're up to date, no matter what. And now, ladies and gentlemen. We've got the What the frack? Well, by 2014, the United States energy boom, supercharged by fracking, has made North Dakota's economy the fastest growing in the United States. Its unemployment rate was lowest among the states. As the oil prices fell last year, some... Uh, Price hedging and similar financial maneuvers kept the industry profitable, but those tactics have stopped working. Reuters reports North Dakota's economy shrank 3.4% in the third quarter of last year, weakest in the nation. Worst numbers for the end of the year and beginning of this year are expected in a report coming out next month. All facets of the oil boom, including the people who supported it, are now in retreat. 
a stunning reversal of fortune for a state whose governor vowed in 2014 that he would not blink in the fight with OPEC for global oil market share. More than 80,000 people poured into North Dakota looking to stake their future on fracking. The state's Bakken oil patch was a magnet for oil workers, business investors, and job-hungry workers. That future has evaporated. Those who haven't packed up and left are facing a new reality of smaller budgets, fewer residents, and the physical detritus of a building boom that left behind hundreds of empty apartments. Boom, ladies and gentlemen. The flip side of bust. And Dateline Dallas, despite mounting evidence showing oil and gas activity, has triggered all of the recent earthquakes in Dallas and Fort Worth. Well, lucky, lucky Twin Cities. No, Texas regulators consistently have questioned the link. Now a new study by University of Texas Research... They have a university in Texas? Wow. Uh, University of Texas researchers argues humans have been causing earthquakes not only in North Texas, but also throughout the state for nearly 100 years. The public thinks these started in 2008. Nothing could be further from the truth, says Cliff Froelich, a senior research scientist at UT Austin, lead author of the study, published in Seismological Research Letters. See, somebody still sends letters. It concludes activities associated with petroleum production almost certainly or probably set off nearly 60% of earthquakes across Texas between 1975 and 2015. That's 1975 is long before fracking came into boom. Another 28% possibly were triggered by oil and gas activities. Scientists deemed only 13% of the quakes to be natural. Those are all natural quakes. A spokeswoman for the Texas Railroad Commission, which ironically re- regulates the oil and gas industry, dismissed the study's methods as arbitrary. An expert at the U.S. Geological Survey said the study offers important new information. Froelich and his colleagues argue that the state regulators have been slow to acknowledge the link between industry practices and earthquakes. Yeah, I wonder why. Oklahoma, which experienced 890 earthquakes Magnitude 3 and above last year, compared with Texas's 21, has recognized the connection. It has ordered operators to slash the volume of wastewater from fracking that they pump back into wells after the fracking, after the frack. Studies by scientists at universities and at the U.S. Geological Survey have shown pressure from wastewater injections, high-volume injections, has disturbed faults in Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas, Arkansas, and a handful of other states creating earthquakes. No need to move to California now. What the frack? And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. They're very sorry. Up north, this week, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, this Justin, delivered a formal apology in his country's House of Commons for an incident that took place more than a century ago. In mid-May 1914, the Komagata Maru, a Japanese steamship, arrived in Vancouver after leaving Hong Kong on board 376 passengers, most of whom were Sikh migrants from British India. The ship was not allowed to dock because a 1908 Canadian law forbade arrivals in the country who did not make a continuous journey from their nation of birth or citizenship. The law was seen as a measure to stymie Indian arrivals. It was practically impossible to travel directly from the Indian mainland to North America. In a challenge to the rules, the Komagato Maru, chartered by a Sikh businessman with ties to an influential Sikh political party in America, steamed across the Pacific. Arrival 
in Canada anticipated by headlines warning of an impending Hindu invasion. Sir Richard McBride, then the Conservative Premier of British Columbia, said at the time, to admit Orientals in large numbers would mean the end, the extinction of the white people, and we always have in mind the necessity of keeping this a white man's country, unquote. A two-month standoff ensued. The ship was eventually turned away. Sent back to India, British colonial authorities attempted to seize suspected Sikh radicals on board. A semi-riot ensued. A reminder for Canada's Sikh population of the widespread discrimination and bigotry meted out on Indians and other Asians on the west coast of Canada a century ago. Today, while knowing no words can fully erase the pain and suffering experienced by the passengers, said Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada this week, I offer a sincere apology on behalf of the government for the laws in force at the time that allowed Canada to be indifferent to the plight of the passengers of the Kamakatu Maru. Canada cannot be solely blamed for every tragic mistake that occurred with the ship and its passengers, but Canada's government was without question responsible for the laws that prevented these passengers from immigrating peacefully and securely. For that and for every regrettable consequence that followed, we are sorry. Trudeau concluded, guiding a standing O. But later the same day, the House of Commons in Canada was in utter chaos. With the Prime Minister at the center of the melee, he was accused of manhandling the Conservative whip and elbowing a, another member of Parliament, Ruth Ellen Brosso, on the uh, floor of the House of Commons. Trudeau says, says he was just trying to help the Conservative Party whipped through a throng of MPs prior to the vote. I came in physical contact with a number of members as I extended my arm, Trudeau said. I did not intend to offend or impact on anyone. I apologize for that unreservedly. I take responsibility. The incident had the House of Commons in an uproar as MPs shouted and pounded their desks. Where do they think they are, Taiwan? Dateline Houston, Texas. The Houston Chronicle has apologized for quoting a Latino athlete speaking in broken English unlike the fixed English I speak in, an incident that has given rise to critiques over the diversity among the newspaper's reporting staff and loose adherence to established journalistic guidelines. The apology stems from a sports column headline, Carlos Gomez knows he's a disappointment, quoting as Gomez, Houston Astro player, saying, for the last year and this year, I really, I not really do much for this team. The fans be angry, they be disappointed. Swift criticism followed the publication. In quoting verbatim, the columnist made no allowances for the language barrier involved. The Associated Press's usage style, followed by most print media outlets, are designed to prevent the appearance of ridiculing a subject or making him seem uneducated. Quote, we sincerely apologize for any offense that was taken, said a Chronicle editor. She categorized the newspaper's adherence to AP style as, quote, less than adequate. In the final days of his life, former Utah Republican Senator Bob Bennett turned to his son and asked him, are there any Muslims in this hospital? I said, yes, Dad, I'm sure there are, he said of the conversation, which was first reported in the Daily Beast. He was very emotional and said, I want to go up to every single one of them and apologize. I want to go every single one of them and tell them how grateful I, that I am that they are in this country and apologize on behalf of the Republican Party for Donald Trump. Bannon, a three-term Republican senator who lost in Utah's 2010 primary to Tea Party opponents, had become increasingly concerned with Trump's rhetoric in recent months. Bennett, Jim Bennett told the story about his father's comments about Muslims at memorial services for his father, who had apologized.
from two Muslims. He approached people wearing hijabs in an airport to let them know he was grateful they were in this country. He apologized for Trump. And on the other side of the aisle, former Pennsylvania Governor Ed Rendell has apologized for saying there are probably more ugly women in America than attractive women. He told the Associated Press the comments were incredibly dumb and selfish, and he's sorry. He was says he was making fun of his own appearance and trying to make the point that there's more of us than there are of them. The security firm that left a mock pipe bomb inside the old Trafford Stadium in Manchester, England, home of Manchester United, has apologized for its role in a security mishap. I'm absolutely devastated that a lapse in my working protocols has resulted in many people being disappointed, frightened, and inconvenienced. Nothing I can say will rectify that, said Chris Reed, head of security at Security Search Management. The company left behind an 8-inch lifelike explosive device in the fifth-floor men's bathroom in the stadium, used during a training session with security dogs on Wednesday. The discovery of the lifelike explosive device triggered a mass evacuation and the cancellation of a key match Sunday between Manchester United and AFC Burnmouth. Not that key. (laughs) Words cannot express what I feel, Reed said. He called the incident inconvenient and unfortunate. This was an honest mistake, and I have to live with that. Manchester United said the evacuation was a complete success. The head of, speaking of Britain, the head of the British government's communications headquarters, GCHQ, that's the equivalent of RNSA in America, has formally apologized for a ban on homosexuals, which led to the dismissal and subsequent suicide of one of its most famous codebreakers, Alan Turing. In the 1950s, Robert Hannigan told a gay rights workplace conference in London that Turing had been an example to others, but he had he as he had not been afraid to think differently and radically. I want to say how sorry I am that he and so many others were treated in this way. Hannigan said their suffering was our loss. GCHQ's ban on homosexuals was only lifted in the 1990s. The life of Turing was featured in the imitation game. GCHQ rarely makes public announcements. The announcement, the apology on Monday accompanied the agency's entrance to the world of Twitter. The UK's domestic spy agency, MI5, was recently rated the country's most gay-friendly employer by Stonewall. So there you go. Veteran San Antonio TV anchorman Randy Beamer apologized for a potentially hurtful moment that happened earlier in the day. He laughed on the 5 p.m. newscast while reading the story about Thomas Manning, the first man in the United States to get a penis transplant. The story had a word in it that a 10-year-old would laugh at, Beamer said during the 10 p.m. broadcast. He explained laughing about this in any way just perpetuates a stigma that these patients should not have to deal with. I'm sorry, I have no excuse for it. I snickered when I read the story. I was being stupid, immature, and unprofessional. A North Naples, Florida community was outraged over a youth pastor's raising a Manazi flag for hundreds to see. The pastor has apologized to the veterans of my community, the Jewish people who fought so hard to eradicate that symbol in its ideology. I had no right to do that, said John Gersoy. It happened when Gersoy was upset after receiving a letter demanding he remove a boat with a two-stroke engine from the community's lake in a gated community. 
after a recent homeowners decision, homeowners association decision to begin enforcing a ban on them. At the time, he compared the board to Nazi Germany. That seemed like a good idea. A Nazi flag, that's a sign of hatred and a sign of millions of people getting killed for that, said one of the residents. Another said, that's a universal sign of hatred and bad things in the world. Everyone knows that. The uh, homeowners organization told Gersoy to remove the flag, and he did. Put up a Confederate flag, because that's a sign of love. No, that's not true. It was in very bad taste. I realized that very quickly. That was not an appropriate symbol. I apologize for the methodology in departing from my faith-based principles of how to handle something in a more graceful way, said Kersoy. Oklahoma City Thunder center Stephen Adams apologized for his comment after the first game of the Western Conference NBA playoffs. He um, described the guards of the opposing Golden State Warriors as, quote, quick little monkeys in a post-game interview with ESPN. It was just a poor choice of words, mate, he told USA Today. I wasn't thinking straight. I didn't know it was going to upset anyone, but I'm truly sorry. It was just a poor choice of words. I was just trying to express how difficult it was chasing those guys around. He's from New Zealand, is he? Is Adams. Of Tongan and British descent, in case you asked. It's just different, mate. Different words, different expressions, and stuff like that. But they obviously can be taken differently. Russia's sports minister, Vitaly Mutko, has apologized for the doping scandal that has threatened his country's participation at the Rio Olympics. He pleaded for the track and field athletes from Russia to be allowed to compete in Rio. He regrets that those using banned substances were not stopped sooner, but he doesn't want clean athletes to be punished for the misdemeanors of others, saying that would be unfair and disproportionate. More about that on the Olympic news coming up. Shortly on this broadcast, Japanese automaker Suzuki Motor Corporation apologized Wednesday for improper road tests, but denied reports that it f- illegally falsified mileage numbers, the second such scandal to slam the Japanese auto industry a month after the Mitsubishi thing reported here last week. Suzuki, whose uh, lineup focuses on mini cars, models with small engines that make them eligible for tax breaks in Japan, said the dubious tests did not affect models sold abroad. They're just eating their, own. They're eating their own. Suzuki chairman Osamu Suzuki appeared before reporters at the transport ministry and bowed to apologize. That's right. There is a Mr. Suzuki at Suzuki. The Transportation Safety Administration is flooding Chicago's O'Hare International Airport with more staff and resources after hundreds of passengers were stranded as their planes took off without them. They were still in line. You heard that story this week. The administrator of the Transportation Safety Administration, Peter Neffinger, apologizing at a travel conference in Houston to the more than 450 passengers who missed their flights. We had a significant challenge in Chicago, Neffinger said. I don't know what that was, but fixing that, that is of great concern to me. I always tell people I won't apologize for doing our job well, but I do apologize to the people who found themselves stranded in Chicago yesterday. 100 more part-time workers in Chicago will be promoted to full-time, according to Mayor Rahm Emanuel, and more than 300 extra TSA officers will be assigned to Chicago airports by mid-August. Well, that should be just in time. Heavyweight world champion Tyson Fury, real name? He's made many offensive remarks in recent years, apologized 
this week for his latest comments in an internet video in which he made anti-Semitic and anti-transgender comments. I apologize to anyone who may have taken offense at any of my comments, Fury said in a statement. I said some things which may have hurt some people, which as a Christian man is not something I would ever want to do. Though it is not an excuse, sometimes the heightened media scrutiny has caused me to act out in public. I mean no harm or disrespect to anyone, and I know more is expected of me as an ambassador of British boxing. And I promise in future to hold myself up to the highest possible standard. Anyone who knows me personally knows that I am in no way a racist or a bigot, and I hope the public accept this apology, unquote. He said of Jews last week, everyone just do what you can. Listen to the government, follow everybody like sheep, be brainwashed by all the Zionist Jewish people who own all the banks, all the papers, all the TV stations, be brainwashed by them all. Of transgender people, Fury said, quote, It's like you're a freak of nature if you're normal. You're like the odd one out. Nobody else. What's normal? I'll just get myself changed into a woman. That's normal, isn't it? Today, call myself Tysina or something like that. Put on a wig. I don't think it's normal. I think they're freaks of nature. I think it'll be perfectly normal in the next 10 years to have sexual relationships with your animals at home. So that will be legal, unquote. His statement added, As a man of traveler heritage, Mr. Fury has suffered bigotry and racial abuse throughout his life and as such would never wish anyone to suffer the same. He's a devout Christian and family man. He accepts in the past he has said things publicly which are misrepresentative of his beliefs and usual good character. Unquote. Last year he made offensive remarks about homosexuals, women, and pedophilia. But he's a heavyweight boxer, ladies and gentlemen, and a Christian man. I'm still working on that. The Apologies of the Week, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. could be your name You look good to me And all I can see Is your fine Brown frame How long Have you been around Oh Tell me when did you Hit this town You're solid with me And all I can see Is your fine Down shack, but I'll gladly make you king on my throne. Oh, don't be a square. Why don't you come over here? Together we can really be gone. You've got such a fine brown frame. Well, well, I wonder what could be your name. Oh, some call me Devel, you know. You look good to me, and all I can see is your fine. I can work with that. I'm done Don't you come over here Together 
could really be gone. I hope you're driving, but you've got a fine brown frame, gal. I wonder what could be your name. You look good to me, uh-huh. and all I can see well, is your fine brown frame. Well, I've been losing weight now, you know. All I see uh-huh. is your fine. Well, I've been really going to this new place. I mean, really new one the corner. your big frame. You know, I live right around the corner from you. Here. Look to me, me, you know, and all and I, I can see is your fine brown frame. It's on 116th in the pink teacup. You know, they, I'm glad they closed that one. I'm glad they closed that one. And you know, I got the new album coming out, the one you're singing on and all that you know about. And I really had to shed some pounds for me to fit all on the cover, but I think I did it. Hi, this is Adam Buckholtz. And this is episode 74 of Entrepod, the podcast for wannabe entrepreneurs and for people who want to be one. And it's brought to you once again by our friends at Quiffle and Quiffle.com for those of you who are still laptoppers. No judgment. And uh, Quiffle is offering this week a 15% discount on the Onventory, an online tool that lets you test your entrepreneurial skill set available on the Quiffle app. And at the website, and most people, of course, do show high skills or else Quiffle would be closer to bankruptcy than it already is. Just kidding, guys. Company is a VC magnet. <laughs> that was a close one. My guest today here in my parents' living room is Genesee Flashpan, our first female entrepreneur on the pod. We're going balls out for diversity. And Genesee is the founder and CEO of a new disruptive startup called We Poopy. Genesee, as I said, even before we started recording, it's it's great to have you with us. Thanks, Adam. Happy to be removing one more glass ceiling, even if it isn't your own ceiling. <laughs> well, it kind of is. I still live here. Huh. But enough about me, Genesee. It's an interesting name, Wee Poopy, mm-hmm. spelled W-E-P-U-P-Y. It's not about sharing puppies, is it? That would be so cool. It would be, but it's not. Oh. Wee Poopy is based on an old Cherokee word meaning we share what we need. Oh, that's even cooler. Also, it's a lucky coincidence that it also involves the target market, all of us, we, uh-huh. and the two things that the app allows us to share, which would be the two functions that normally pl- take place in a public bathroom. Gotcha. Uh, sorry, I was up late binge-watching Shark Tank. <laughs> so I'm guessing from your use of the word share... Mm-hmm that your company is part of the exploding sharing universe? Well, I guess it's better to be exploding than imploding. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're a building. But yeah. But yes, We Poopy is a platform for people to share their restrooms. Mm. We looked at the sharing landscape, Mm -hmm. and of course the home sharing apps are huge, but they're inspiring mega controversies in a lot of cities. Sure. We asked ourselves, uh, what could homeowners share that would be equally disruptive to the economy without uh, disrupting the neighborhood while still giving homeowners the great kind of income stream that they're about to get used to. And I'm guessing your answer is their bathrooms? Yeah. Sharing the kitchen would involve you know, too much time, too mm. much cleaning mm-hmm. up. Everybody's mm-hmm. got a different way they like to organize a kitchen. I mean, that's what my partner and I argue about all the time. <laughs> 
but a bathroom, it's pretty basic and standard. And if you have a choice between a skanky public restroom, maybe with graffiti on the walls, uh, maybe with creepy people hanging around, uh, and a lovely facility in a well-kept private home, I think it's a slam dunk and a wide-open three-pointer all rolled into one. Wow, you really are working hard to fit into the so-called bros club. <laughs> Doing my best. Uh, so let so me... Sorry to interrupt, but mm. this is maybe the clincher oh. for a lot of people who might be living in or visiting North Carolina or other states with so-called bathroom laws. Oh. A wee poopy platform facility in a private home is so totally gender neutral, it's ridiculous. I mean, that's in a private bathroom's freaking DNA. <laughs> so you never have to wonder if you're in the right one. Wow, that is a totally contemporary angle. Yeah, it's a fast-moving space. So this works just like the other sharing apps. Mm -hmm. People with bathrooms to share Put their information on your platform. People looking for bathrooms, check in. In about 14 seconds, the transaction has been completed. Wow. And through our deal with Waze, mm -hmm. you get the quickest possible route to the comfort you're craving. It sure beats looking around for a building with a public restroom that's not locked or something else weird. Have, have you had bad experiences in public restrooms? I know it's a personal question, but I, uh, I ran out of the business one. So. You know, Adam... Just compare the aesthetics of most public bathrooms to the rooms in the homes of your friends, or, or better yet, your friends' parents. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I, I wouldn't particularly... We do, we do require that our we poopians be homeowners, not renters, because some rental agreements might be so last century that they might stand in the way of a sharing arrangement. Okay, that gets me back on track. Any other requirements or regulations for the people who are sharing their facilities or the customers or anyone else? We do require, or we really ask that our we poopians maintain their bathrooms to a high degree of hygiene. We recommend they consult Martha Stewart's little pamphlet, Rules of the Roost, for reference. Mm. And as far as our customers are concerned, each visit is time-limited to 15 minutes Oh, that's to maximize what you might call customer flow. Uh-huh. While still allowing people who might be, you know, going through food poisoning symptoms to gain at least some sense of closure. Oh, that's very cool. It's like you've thought of everything. My team and I wargamed this thing pretty thoroughly before we even started writing the code. Wow, that's a good tip for word-be entrepreneurs. They should do that. Mm -hmm. So have you uh, rolled out to any cities in particular yet? We're live in Oakland, California, right across the bay from our home office, mm -hmm. and we're expanding to Portland, Oregon in June. They 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 always seem to be open to new stuff up there. Oh, they sure are. I had a banana burrito up there one time. Uh, so, Genesee, mm -hmm. one, one will wrap up question, and then my mom has cake. Oh. Any problems with local laws and stuff? Well, my partner's ex is a paralegal. He researched uh, whether there's any law against people doing short-term bathroom rentals. And those words aren't even mentioned in any ordinance in California or Oregon. So we think we're ultra cool. And I guess your angel investors agree. True that. Well, Genesee uh, Flashpan, if I was going to have a first female guest on the podcast, I couldn't have had a better one. But now uh, my dad needs the living room back. Some sports stuff is on. So thanks very much. And to the listeners, uh, that's the end of this week's Entrepod. If anybody's got that puppy sharing app going, please let me know. Meantime, I'm Adam Buckholz. So long from my folks' house. 
From London, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. News of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol Jr. The International Olympic Committee could ban up to 31 athletes who potentially could have competed at this year's Rio Games after retesting 454 doping samples from the Beijing Games eight years ago. The athletes, as yet unnamed, represent 12 nations and competed in six sports. They'll be banned from Rio if found to have broken anti-doping rules. The IOC said it retested the samples using the very latest scientific analysis methods. They've eschewed the obsolete ones, apparently. It also says it's retesting 250 samples from the 2012 London Games. Uh Uh-oh. The official slogan of the Games in Beijing was Zero Tolerance for Doping. Officials conducted 4,000, more than 4,000 doping tests. At the time, the most in Olympic history, six competitors eventually had their medals taken away. A uh, shot putter from Georgia had his samples from the 2005 World Championships retested. His sample, his results from 2005 onward were nullified. Olympic doping samples are kept for 10 years at a laboratory in Switzerland. The IOC also announced this week it's asked the World Anti-Doping Agency to conduct an investigation into that alleged state-run doping scheme initiated by the Russian government at the 2014 Sochi Games just two years ago. And the Justice Department of the United States has opened an investigation into that state-sponsored doping scheme in Russia. The inquiry escalates what has been a rolling sports controversy into a federal criminal case involving foreign officials, Russians, Ruskies. Federal courts have allowed prosecutors to bring cases against foreigners living abroad if there's some connection to the United States. That connection can be limited, such as the use of an American bank. I thought they were all global these days. What's an American... A report published by the World Anti-Doping Agency in November accused Russia of systematic state-sponsored doping. Russian officials have responded to the accusation with both defiance and contrition. Currently living in Los Angeles, Dr. Rochenko, Grigory Rochenko, the longtime head of Russia's anti-doping laboratory, who fled to the United States fearing for his safety, says he has no intention of returning to Russia. I have no choice, he said. I am between two flames. Australian athletes at the Rio Olympics will be supplied with antiviral condoms to help combat the spread of the Zika virus. The condoms, containing an antiviral lubricant, will be distributed to athletes as a measure to help prevent them from contracting the Zika virus. Sexual transmission of the virus has contributed to its spreading beyond South America. Germany last week reported its first case of the virus following a sexual encounter in Puerto Rico. Australian team chef de mission Kitty Chiller I'm going to repeat the name Kitty Chiller said steps are being taken to minimize the health risk of athletes traveling to Brazil. Those steps include distribution of the antiviral condoms that have been developed by one of the team's commercial partners Star Pharma. That's according to Australian chef de mission Kitty Chiller. 
We don't write them. We just read them. The Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. I'd just like to hear that San Antonio anchor say Kitty Chiller three times without laughing. And now, ladies and gentlemen. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In this case, the inspector general's office at the CIA has acknowledged it mistakenly destroyed... It's only copy of that mammoth Senate torture report at the same time that lawyers for the Justice Department were assuring a federal judge that copies of the document were being preserved. This is according to Michael Isikoff, fine investigative reporter now at Yahoo News. While another copy of the report does exist elsewhere at the CIA, the erasure of this most controversial document, this is the one we haven't been allowed to see, that's how controversial it is, ladies and gentlemen, by the office charged with policing agency conduct has alarmed the U.S. senator who oversaw the torture investigation, Diane Feinstein of San Francisco, of California, and reignited a behind-the-scenes battle over whether the full unabridged report should, could, or will ever be released. This, according to Isakoff's quotation of multiple intelligent, intelligence community sources familiar with the incidents. The deletion of the document has been portrayed by agency officials to Senate investigators as, quote, an inadvertent foul-up by the inspector general in what one intelligence community source described as a series of errors straight out of the Keystone Cops. CIA inspector general officials deleted an uploaded computer file with the report and then accidentally destroyed a disk that also contained the document, filled with thousands of secret files about the CIA's use of enhanced interrogation methods. It's breathtaking that this could have happened, especially in the Inspector General's office. They're the ones that are supposed to be providing accountability within the agency itself, says Douglas Cox, a City University of New York School of Law professor. His specialty is tracking the preservation of federal records. Quote, it makes you wonder what was going on over there, unquote. The incident was privately disclosed to the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Justice Department last summer, according to sources, but the destruction of the copy of the sensitive report has never been made public, nor was it reported to the federal judge, who at the time was overseeing the lawsuit seeking access to the still unclass to the still classified document under the Freedom of Information Act. A CIA spokesman emphasized that another open computer disk with the full report has been and still is locked in a vault at agency headquarters. I can assure you the CIA has retained a copy, says the agency's chief of public affairs. The full three-volume report, which formed the basis for the executive summary, the, which did become public, has never been released. Feinstein wrote CIA Director John Brennan Friday night, asking him to immediately provide a new copy of the full report to the Inspector General's office. Well, that should take care of everything. They'll take good care of it this time. Eh... News of the Inspector's General, ladies and gentlemen. It is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now... We can help to make things grow Help to make the waters flow 
to save our precious land. Let us try. To try is to succeed. Let us try, the motto of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. You may recall the Corps of Engineers got approval to uh, cull, that is to say to kill, a lot of cormorants on an island in the Columbia River. Well, that cormorant colony has suffered a complete collapse after a significant disturbance last weekend. More than 16,000 birds have abandoned the East Sand Island nesting colony, according to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Independent monitors surveying the East Sand Island double-crested cormorant colony reported that the colony had abandoned all nests. This disturbance resulted in nest abandonment and the subsequent loss of cormorant eggs by avian predation. Gulls, eagles, crows. A Corps spokesperson said 4,000 of the birds returned Wednesday but were staying away from the colony. Biologists are looking for the other 12,000 birds in the estuaries area and beyond. The Corps has killed more than 4,500 birds over the past year in an effort to protect the salmon population there. What's really hurting them are the dams built by the Corps of Engineers. The agencies have turned East Sand Island into a killing ground and put the birds under enormous, tremendous stress, said the head of the Audubon Society of Portland. He adds, nobody should be surprised that the colony failed under these conditions. It was, he said, the largest double-crested cormorant colony in the world. This is simply wanton slaughter, and it has now put the entire western population of cormorants at risk. The incident is under investigation. Culling activities, that is to say, killing activities, have been suspended. But you know, soon enough, the Corps will try again. And now, ladies and gentlemen, finally in this week's broadcast, some news about our old friend formaldehyde. Guess what's in e-cigarettes? A random inspection by the Taiwan Food and Drug Administration found that all e-cigarette liquids it tested contained formaldehyde. 90.3% contained acetaldehyde, acetaldehyde, leading the Health Promotion Aid Administration of Taiwan to say it would work toward regulating e-cigarettes along with tobacco products. Between two thir- 2013 and last year, the, FDA exa- the Taiwanese FDA examined 2,500 e-cigarette liquids, found that 70% contained nicotine. Another random inspection a couple of years ago, found that 100% contained formaldehyde and 90.3% contained acetaldehyde. Formaldehyde is classified by the WHO as a group 1 agent, meaning there is enough evidence to conclude that a compound can cause cancer in humans, says the Director General of the Health Protection Agency. Acetaldehyde is listed as a group 2A agent, possibly carcinogenic to humans by the International Agency for Research on Cancer. I think I used to have a Group 2A agent. He was he was possibly carcinogenic to my career. Our old friend formaldehyde, ladies and gentlemen, always ready to help.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at this same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, putting the Q back in WBCQ. Around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want it, harryshare.com and kcsn.org. Available on the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London. For your smartphone, sure, through Stitcher.com or via podcast, a free podcast. From all these different places, iTunes, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, TuneIn.com, and WWNO.org. And it would be just like everybody taking foreign policy advice from Henry Kissinger. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. A tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile and Hawaii desk. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson at WWNO New Orleans. New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. I moved uptown just for that pronunciation. The email address for this program playlist of the music heard here on and the opportunity of a lifetime for you to get a Cars I Talk t-shirt or two for your very own all at harryshearer.com and me, I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from London. <laughs>